0: As much as I love being the host, writer, producer, director and creator of The Shrift, my real dream was not really to make podcasts. In fact, it was to write great songs and perform them before crowds of adoring fans. When I was 14, I used to pray to God every night to help me to write great pop songs, even though I felt a bit guilty about using my prayers in this self-serving way. The writer of the song Wonderwall was Noel Gallagher of the group Oasis. I will never forget what he once said in an interview. They played a clip of Oasis playing Wonderwall before thousands and thousands of fans all singing along. Because maybe, Noel said in response to this video, there is no better feeling than playing music you wrote and having it sung back to you by thousands of people who have each memorized every word. I practically salivated when I heard Noel describe this moment. This was the moment I myself wanted to one day experience. I wanted to write a song so phenomenal, so epic, that millions of people would want to sing it along with me. It was not just that I wanted adoration or to be famous. I wanted to achieve the pinnacle of artistic creation. Certain songs are just so good, so tender and transportive, that they overflow with what I can only call divine energy. I didn't really want the crowds. I wanted the experience of having created a pop musical masterpiece whose melody would give me and my fans alike goosebumps. For various reasons, I never reached this apex as a songwriter Sure, I wrote some good songs, but nothing which could match Oasis's Wonderwall or Weezer's Buddy Holly or Coldplay's In My Place. To this day, I still think it is something of a miracle that these songs were able to be written at all, by humans no less. But still, it wasn't in my fate. I did write some songs, however, which some people might describe as good. One of these songs I wrote about five years ago, I actually wrote it in German, and it's called Die Blätter im Erbst, which translates to The Leaves of Autumn. I played the song for my brother Mike on guitar. Mike is also a guitarist, an avid pop music fan, and a retired college radio DJ. And most importantly, Mike is a very tough critic of pretty much everything, including music. So, I played Mike my song. It went something like this. you've heard enough the quality was also quite poor because it was only a demo so Mike heard the song he listened very attentively and then he said yeah I mean it's good and all but the world just doesn't need another song like this thousands of these types of average songs have already been written sadly Mike was right I felt like Salieri in this moment no, even worse, like Salieri's Salieri. It was a decent song, but it didn't reach the godlike heights to which only an infinitesimal fraction of songs have ascended. In short, it didn't sound like this. <laughs> Quite frankly, there's not much of a point in writing above-average music if these sublime masterworks are competing with you. A few years later, during the lockdown, I took up cooking as a hobby, and I got pretty good at it. I baked bread, I made my own hummus and shakshuka, I even learned more advanced dishes like French onion soup and goulash, well, sometimes I made meals for my family, and recently, After I had gotten even better at cooking, I prepared Mike a Shabbat dinner. Mike, throughout the meal, this most pugnacious of critics simply showered me with praise. This food tastes amazing, he said. I don't know how you're able to do this, he said. I love the way you've spiced this dish. On his face, you could see how happy and satisfied he was, how much joy and meaning my cooking brought to his life. At least temporarily. future's been sold every night
1: we gone
0: You are listening to The Shrift, Life Tip 19 first Kings 5
1: How we like to sing along Though the
0: In 1882, Nietzsche wrote in his book The Joyful Science that, quote, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him, unquote. With these words, Nietzsche was indicating that the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution had made God irrelevant. In the Middle Ages and the ancient world, God was simply presumed and the existence of God helped to answer an array of difficult philosophical and scientific questions. But as modern science began to be able to answer these same questions, and as humans began to believe that rationality alone could explain the universe, God, we might say, died. But when Nietzsche said that God is dead, he didn't just mean that people stopped being religious. He meant the sentiment more broadly. People had stopped believing in just about everything. That is to say, the bottom fell out from life. This phenomenon can be best witnessed in the case of Copernicus, who discovered that the solar system was heliocentric, that the Earth revolved around the Sun, along with all of the other planets. Was Earth really no different than Mars or Jupiter or Saturn in an existential sense? This was a troubling question, which no one wanted to be asking, but which now they had to be asking. In short, the heavens themselves ceased to make sense. There was no longer an answer to astronomy. Astronomy was just there. The same was true for thousands of subjects. When did history begin? For thousands of years, that was a simple question with a clear answer. Now, no one really knew. Is murder wrong? The answer to that question was once obvious but not any more, as Raskolnikov was eager to remind us. This is a phenomenon which, in literature, goes back to Faust, or even to Hamlet, or even to the Book of Ecclesiastes. Faust complained that after spending his entire life reading books, he could only conclude that nothing could be known. Hamlet could never really be entirely sure if his uncle murdered his father. And the son of David opens the book of Ecclesiastes by asserting that everything is meaningless. But it is Kafka's short story, The New Advocate, which best captures the feeling that, in the modern world, there is no center anymore. Not only is God dead, but certainty itself and direction itself have become extinct notions. This short story, The New Advocate, is about Alexander the Great's war horse, whose name is Bucephalus. Bucephalus, however, is now living in Kafka's era, and instead of serving as a warhorse to Alexander, he is now just an overworked lawyer. The narrator of the story discusses how, for this horse, Bucephalus, it is rather difficult for him to be a lawyer, as times have changed. Kafka then gives us one set of sentences which, I think, capture a certain point I'm trying to make in this lecture. With great drama, Kafka writes, Today, one cannot deny it. There is no more Alexander the Great. Today, we may understand how to murder, and we do not lack the skillfulness to strike our friend with a lance across the banquet table. And for many, Macedonia is too small, so that they curse Philip the Father. But no one, no one can lead the way to India. Even back then, India's gates were unreachable. But the king's sword always pointed the way there. Today, the gates have receded to remoter and higher places. Nobody knows the direction any longer. Many carry swords, but only to brandish them and the eye that tries to follow them is confused." Indeed, Kafka writes that no one, no one can lead the way to India. In the ancient world of Alexander the Great, there was a clearly defined and even attainable goal, conquer India. The importance of this goal simply made sense to everyone. Here, Kafka is obviously speaking metaphorically, He is indicating that, in our times, there is no center anymore. And if we try to accomplish existential enterprises, which get to the bottom of existence, our eyes will simply become confused in the chase. But we can also take Kafka at his word here. Notice how today, except for a few countries still thinking they are living in a previous century, the age of conquest is long past. Truly, countries don't even want to conquer India anymore. It just seems pointless today, and there is almost something sad about that. The haftarah for this week from the Book of Kings, Parsha to Rumah, tells of Solomon's building of the first temple in Jerusalem. The haftarah is very specific as to how the temple should be built. It states exactly the dimensions of the building, the number of floors of the temple, the size of its porch, the type of wood cedar and the kind of staircase, winding. In chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, the Book of Kings discusses where the Holy of Holies should be placed inside the temple. The Holy of Holies, or in Hebrew, the Debir, was, as the name suggests, the most sacred place in all of Judaism, and hence the most sacred place in the world. This is where once a year on Yom Kippur, the high priest would enter. This is where the Ark of the Covenant The Ten Commandments were held. This is where God himself would appear. Now, of course, this place no longer exists, and the closest Jews can get to anything resembling this holy realm is to pray by the Western Wall in Jerusalem. As I read this passage from Kings, I was astonished at how simple it was back then. The Book of Kings describes the Holy of Holies this most magnificent of spheres, just alongside a kind of 101 course on carpentry on how to build a roof from planks of cedar wood. While only a select few could ever visit this holy of holies, the important thing is that everyone knew it was there. No one challenged it. Everyone knew that, in short, the king's sword led the way to India. Everyone knew that the gates to a higher realm were reachable, were, indeed, Quite literally, just around the corner. As Nietzsche showed with the line that God is dead, our society has lost the anchor it once had, and this is true even if you believe in God. When we set lofty goals before ourselves, like writing celestial music, or understanding what God is, or developing an equation which connects astrophysics with quantum mechanics, as Einstein failed to do, we never get to the De Beer. We never get to this holy of holies, which once upon a time could be accessed with a mere tug at the door. Ironically, however, today we can enjoy similar experiences of ecstasy and transcendence and triumph in rather mundane activities, like cooking a gourmet dish for your friends. My point here is not to offer the cliche advice to appreciate life's little moments, although that's also not a bad idea. Rather, I wish to say that, in a sense, we have missed our chance to accomplish Herculean feats. However, this colossal feeling of accomplishment and unity can nevertheless still be found, but only in underwhelming pursuits. Put another way, we may not be able to find the Holy of Holies anymore, but we can, if we try, find an expensive pair of Ray-Ban sunglasses we thought we lost at the beach last summer if we take the time to clean out our apartment. Many people approach meditation as though they are searching for the Debir and hoping to gain access. Yet, the real benefits of meditation come when we significantly lower our expectations. Meditation is more like going to the gym than going to Tibet. It is a daily training practice, about as glamorous as brushing your teeth. Yet, While we shouldn't expect meditation to overwhelm us with oceanic feelings, it is the trivial, insignificant benefits that we get from meditation, which makes it a kind of magical and transcendental process. It is the small joy of feeling the tense muscles on the back of your neck become soft. It is the awareness of your breath as you are emptying your luggage before airport security. It is the cloudy, wave-like sounds made by cars passing by, which you never heard before. Ironically, it is when we treat meditation as unholy and routine that we once more have access to the hidden room of the temple.